listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Back in the mid-1950s, Honda set out to build a form of transportation that everyone could afford. And what they ended up with was the Honda Super Cub. The Super Cub was cheap to buy, easy and simple to repair, and it quickly became popular around the globe. As a matter of fact, to date, the Honda Super Cub has sold over 87 million units. And that number has garnered it the distinction of being the most produced vehicle in the world ever. And it's still selling. So if you don't know what a Honda Super Cub is, well, perhaps you're just a little out of the loop. And since then, the Honda Super Cub has been used for everything imaginable, from pizza and mail delivery to daily commuting and weekend trips. And a quick search on the internet will bring you up images of Super Cubs under impossible loads. Loads of bags and chickens and wood and people and virtually everything you can imagine. It's tiny and unassuming. It could even be called silly looking. But you can't say it's incapable. In fact, it's more than capable for the daily tasks like getting groceries or zipping to work and back. And that's what it was designed for. But it's also capable of something else. Something that Mr. Honda didn't plan for. And that's world adventure travel. And adventure travel on a Honda Super Cub is exactly what we're talking about today on this episode of Adventure Rider Radio. I'm Jim Martin. We're going to be right back. Stay with us. This episode has been brought to you in part by Traction E-Rag, the online magazine for off-road riders. TractionERag.ca and Audible.com. To get your free book right now for listening to Adventure Rider Radio, visit audibletrial.com forward slash A-R-R. That's audibletrial.com forward slash A-R-R. Ed March has been traveling the world on his Honda Super Cup, a C90, and he's been posting videos the entire time, and he has a load of followers watching what he does, and he's kind of crazy and fun. And now he's with Rachel Lasham, who's also, well, kind of crazy and fun, as you're going to get from this interview. I think the best way to introduce them is to play this little soundbite from a video he's posted on YouTube about checking how the tongue sticks to a frozen pole. We've always wanted to know what happens if you lick the lamppost at minus 15. Oh no. Ow! I'm actually stuck. Uh oh. What do I do? This is a problem. <laughs> Ow. Right, never do that. My name's Ed March. I'm 27 years old now. I have to keep remembering that. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, and this is my 36th country that I've visited on my trusty Honda C90. My name's Rachel Lasham, and I'm 30 years old, and I'm a sort of adventure motorcycling bum, really. Uh, uh, enjoying the world, escaping society, um, nine to five, and basically having a lot of fun while I'm doing it. Ed March and Rachel Lasham were in Canmore, Alberta for this interview. Canmore is in the mountains of Alberta and is experiencing winter right now. So they're riding through snow and ice on their Honda C90s. And motorcycles in the wintertime in Canmore, Alberta, yeah, you just don't see that. 
Ed, why don't you begin by telling us how this crazy journey got started? I was at work uh, back in the UK and I saw an episode of BBC Top Gear, which is where they rode through Vietnam um, on little motorcycles. Um, and basically through a long sort of conversation at work, I said, oh, it'd be a good idea to do the Vietnam bit, except I fly my bike there and then ride home. Um, and then somebody said, don't be stupid. You can't ride a small bike around the world. Um, and I said, right, you're on. In two years' time, I'm going to be sat on my bike in Vietnam, uh, pointing it back towards England um, and just seeing what happens. Now, I, I just instantly get this feeling that, that you're that type of guy that if somebody says, no, you can't, you're going to go for <laughs> it. <laughs> uh, yeah, basically. Like, yeah. I mean, for um, instance, if somebody said, don't put your tongue against a, you know, a, a freezing cold steel pole in the middle of wintertime, <laughs> you're probably the type of guy who'd try something like that. Oh, so you've seen that piece yeah. of video there, have you? <laughs> he did it again. We were putting the tent up and he goes, oh, I wonder if my... And yeah, his, his tongue stuck to the tent pole. Some people never know. I do believe that is the <laughs> definition of insanity, repeating the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. <laughs> but... <laughs> We'll go back. <laughs> we'll go back. Um, so you decide to just take this challenge upon yourself and ride your, your Honda C90. How did that go? Uh, went absolutely brilliantly. Um, I will I will admit that um, as I first got the bike out of customs, uh, I actually left my keys in England as well, uh, which wasn't a particularly smooth move because I actually had to um, hotwire the bike in front of the police while I was still in customs. Um and I had to break the locks with uh, screwdrivers and a hammer, which is always quite an interesting conversation. But um, after after just sort of coming to terms with, you know, I am like 20,000 kilometers away from home and I've only got a little Honda 90 to ride. Um, it suddenly started to make a lot of sense. Like in Thailand, I got an oil change, but instead of filling it up with oil, they actually filled it up with brake fluid, uh, which isn't a particularly smart move. It lasted about lasted about 60 miles uh, before the piston actually melted and the engine just completely uh, disintegrated. But I got a full engine rebuild in a Honda dealership, um, got a complete new engine rebuild, uh, oil change, spark plug and lunch. And it took them two and a half hours uh, and cost me £28, which is about $40. <laughs> um, and it was at that moment that I was sort of looking at my bike, which if I'd been riding any other bike and it had been filled with brake fluid, um, you know, if you're talking about a big, like new expensive bike, you're talking like two thousand pound, like three thousand um, dollars, just for the new engine. And I was looking at my bike with a forty dollar repair bill, and all of a sudden, it didn't didn't seem such a stupid idea anymore. Um, and I had a brilliant time all the way back. You uh, you found that the cheap repairs made it very affordable, made everything uh, a non-issue that would be a catastrophic thing for other riders. And is that what kept you riding the Honda C90 through the rest of your adventures? Um, within reason, yeah. Um, the main thing that I really started to like about taking a taking a little small friendly bike um, is the attitudes that you get from people. Like when I was riding through little villages in the middle of Cambodia and Vietnam, I'd pull up at a set of traffic lights next to like a hundred other Honda C90s, and as they would look at me and they'd look at my bike and they'd realise that like I'm the same as them. Um, I'm at their level. Um, I'm completely relatable. And they're sort of looking at my bike and they're going like, wow, I could do that. And this guy is probably a normal guy, you know, because he isn't flashy. And I can and I can comprehend the amount of money that he has. Whereas, um, you know, and uh, every time I got to a border crossing, 
I never had a border guard ask me for any bribes because if you've seen a picture of my bike and the amount of rust that's on it, um, nobody is expecting me to have any money. Um, and, you know, you'd like rock up at a hotel in the middle of nowhere and ask if they've got a cheap room. And they'll look at my bike and go, oh, yeah, OK. Whereas if, if I were to rock up on a bike that's like 10 years of their salary, um, more often than not, um, in my opinion, you'd, you, you'd end up with what I call Ferrari syndrome which is where if you drive a Ferrari around the US, within reason, you shouldn't be. Um, am I allowed to swear on this? No. <laughs> I've got to work out. <laughs> no. um, yeah. Uh, That's not swearing. Is it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> within reason, um, you'd be seen to uh, probably not be not be such a nice or um, relatable guy. Um, but driving a Ferrari shouldn't shouldn't actually make you that kind of a person. But people just look at it and they think, why is that guy driving around that thing that's so flashy? Um, and yeah, the reason I ride my little bike is because that just doesn't happen really. People just look at the bike and they just smile. Well, we often talk about the barriers being at least removed or lessened rather when you're riding a motorcycle compared to driving a car or, or a truck when you go through somewhere. But with riding your bike, and they've got to look at you maybe even not as a world traveler. Maybe they just look at you as a uh, just part of the scenery. It's uh, the same as everything else. So you don't set off those red flags because like you said, with a, a Ferrari driver, somebody pulls in, you you really don't have anything to relate to them unless you are as well a Ferrari driver. And then of course you're going to go for a few beers and have a great night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, um, yeah, that's it. That's it all over really. Um, it's just, it's kind of like I get the same reception. Well, I, I almost get the same reception as people who ride bicycles through countries. Um, people see, you know, see my bike, they see somebody on a bicycle and they're like, wow, you really want to see my country. Um, you're really not here for any other purpose than just to meet people and just to experience it. Um, you're not here to go sort of tearing through and, you know, and you're not just, I don't know, just sort of going on like a world tour just because you got loads of money. Um, yeah, it's just, yeah, there aren't really any barriers when you ride a bike that costs like $200 because you're just, yeah, I don't know, you just, so, yeah, I, you are so, so much part of the scenery especially when you're surrounded by another couple of thousand Honda C90s. <laughs> Nobody even knows that you're there. So, Ed, let me ask you this then. Is your style of travel, or, or for the both of you, you and Rachel, your, your style of travel that you're doing right now, is it more of a real adventure or a sort of an honest adventure as far as connecting with the locals? Because that's what traveling is all about, is going to see these places and these different cultures. Is yours more real because of the vehicle you're riding? Um, I don't know if it's sort of more or less real than the, than other people because um if people were to ride a really modern flashy bike if they were still very outgoing and really hunted down the friendly people um then then they could have the same experience but mm -hmm. like uh we were in alaska um stopped in a car park just to uh just to get some food and um and a guy randomly came over and just started chatting to us um, turned out that he actually had a uh, short takeoff and landing plane, um, invited us over to his house, and he took us up for a flight over some glaciers, and we landed on top of a mountain. Mm. And when we got uh, talking to him, he said, he said, I've never approached any other bikers like in my life before, just because, you know, because they're just people traveling through. But mm. I saw you two guys on your little bikes, and you're obviously here just having a laugh, and you look like friendly people, because you can't really be an unfriendly person on a Honda 90. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah. yeah and uh and it's just and 
it's another one of those little things that's happened on my bike, which is why mm. I can't travel on anything else now. You get a lot, a lot more involved in their lives, like their real lives as well. So a lot of people take you in or just want to talk to you and get to know what you, you know, you're doing because they're very unpretentious bikes there. I mean, mine's purple, so it's not exactly threatening. <laughs> and um, yeah, it just gets people involved and they're genuine as well. They're not trying to, you know, be anything other than themselves. I thought you were going to say that you meet the nicest people on a Honda. <laughs> well, you do, but... <laughs> so for those out there, and, and I think there's probably very few, but for those out there who don't know what we're talking about now for Honda C90, this is the time to unveil the beast. Can you give us a description of what this machine looks like? Um, well, they they look like scooters, basically. Um, if you've ever seen a pizza delivery bike... Um, that they call a step through so you can put your feet through the center of it um that's basically what they're used for um over in over in sort of the western world um uh yeah it's and it's uh, the world's most popular vehicle uh, every three months more honda cubs and the c90 is a cub 90 um yeah so every three months more honda cubs are made than bmw have made in their entire range in the last hundred years um, so in terms of just wealth of spares and the amount of people that ride them, um, there isn't anything else even remotely comes close. We're talking about a vehicle that's really designed for around the city, short runs, jumping on and off very quickly. It's That's the design yeah. of the vehicle, not for long distance touring. Uh, no, no, no. I mean, uh, it's... It, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a strange design that, because it was in 1958 it was designed, and it was actually meant to replace the bicycle. Uh, Soishiro Honda actually wanted it to um, to be like the next form of transport on. Um, so what they did was they made it so that anyone can ride it. Um, it's got the leg shields so that your like legs stay clean. Um, it handles really well. It's got a centrifugal clutch. Uh, so you can't stall it, but it's also got gears, so you get decent handling off-road. Um, and it was meant to be a bike that is fairly nondescript when you ride it. You basically just get on it, and it gets you there, and it's just easy, which is which is why it's meant for sort of you know a businessman and a delivery drivers around town. But it does mean that if you take it on a really long-distance tour, um, it's actually just a very comfortable, simple piece of machinery. Riding it off-road is easy. Um, you know, when we're riding on ice and snow and things, because it's so light, uh, it's just it's just no hassle, really. Um, and it's also meant to not be maintained because it because it was targeted at sort of businessmen and like delivery drivers that they're just abused every second of their life. So it means that when you take them on a long-distance trip, they just don't seem to die. Um, I haven't killed mine yet, and I've tried. I've tried very <laughs> hard, but it hasn't died yet. <laughs> I think many people who hear this interview are going to be rushing out afterwards looking for these C90s. So you're probably increasing the used value of these machines as we do this. <laughs> it's already happened. <laughs> I'll bet. Uh, yeah. Let's go back to 2011. Just talk about that start. You did the, was it Malaysia to UK that you did the video on on your first trip? Uh, yes. Yes, I did. Yeah. So can you give us an overview of that trip? Uh, it was, um, it was the first time that I left Europe. I had no idea what I was doing. Basically, I just used the theory that everybody in Asia rides a C90. Therefore, I can ride a C90 through all of Asia um, was my logic that I used. Um, just started riding home. Didn't didn't plan anything. I had my visas and vaccinations, but that was it, really. I just I wanted to see what the world was like. Um, and it was just me by myself um, 
with a small little HD camera just so that I could really interact with people and film the way that they actually act. Because when you've got a nice little small camera, people don't act all funny in front of it. Um, and uh, yeah, and just rode back. It was, yeah, it was uh, eight months and 14,500 miles. And it was just absolute chaos, really, because I was left on my own devices, which um, <laughs> if any of your uh, listeners have seen the DVD, they'll, they'll know what happens if I'm uh, left alone. <laughs> Well, well, the, yeah, I have seen some of your stuff. And it and it's, happens even when he's supervised. <laughs> and it should be X-rated, I think, some of it. But the cover of the DVD says a C90 adventure, Malaysia to UK with Ed March. One man, one camera, 14,500 miles, no idea. <laughs> and, and I think that's priceless. And it's a, it's a great cover. So you came back, you survived that, and you made this DVD. Let the listeners know just how rich you are, how you managed to afford all of this. <laughs> um, well, yeah, so, um, I'm really uh, not rich at all. But um, all I did was, um, was I was working 60-hour weeks, working every single second that I could. And I just led a very simple life and I didn't buy shiny things basically for instance uh whenever me and Rachel are at like motorcycle rallies uh, it's brilliant the amount of people that come up to me and they're like how do you afford to do all of this you know like how have you ridden through 36 countries and I go what bike do you ride and they say oh you know BMW 1200 GSA and I go yeah well that bike cost more than all of my trips combined through all 36 countries um so you've got more money than I have <laughs> Um, and it's brilliant watching the penny drop. They're like, wow. So, you know, or some people say, oh, you know, well, I don't have a shiny bike. Like, yeah, but did you buy a new car? I go, yeah. I say, well, the second you turned that key, the amount that you lose in depreciation was the entire budget for my eight month Malaysia trip. It's all about spending your money on what you want. A new car like might bring actual joy to, to some people. But for me, I'd prefer just to have a eight month holiday riding around the world. Um, and then get back and buy a car that's a year old. And I've actually got the same amount of money as the other person. And we both got a car that's a year old, but I had a motorcycle trip. <laughs> we talk a lot about that, about um, you know finding the right moment or being able to afford to travel on this. And there's, there's no doubt we get caught up in buying all the things we think we need for a trip, which is why I love your story, because you're completely the opposite to that. You haven't bought all the fancy gear. Um, you haven't bought all the little add-ons. I've seen photographs of your vehicle, uh, of your, uh, <laughs> I call it a vehicle. A I, I'm going to do it. I'm going to call it a motorcycle. I've seen uh, <laughs> pictures of your motorcycle and the, uh, the adapters, like the, the front baskets that you have on there, et cetera. None of this looks to be high end, whereas you're more about <laughs> the experience rather than the hardware that you're you're traveling with. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, that is it 100%. I mean, there are some things that I've had to spend. Actually, I'm trying to think what I have spent money on. Uh, no, not a lot. I can't actually think of anything in fairness. <laughs> um, oh, um, I do have some Gore-Tex motorcycle gear. Uh, because um, I did seven years of getting wet every time it rained, and I was I was sure that there was no uh, motorcycle gear that could keep you dry. And then when I met Rachel, she had some Gore-Tex motorcycle gear, and after we went out riding and I came back looking like a drowned rat, and <laughs> Rachel was absolutely pristine, that was when I invested and got some Gore-Tex gear. Um, so um, I do spend the money uh, where it's needed, mm. but... Um, yeah, it's getting what you need, what you instead of what you think you need. 
So it's actually spending those years, you know, getting wet and going, actually, no, I do. I can justify spending the money on this. I do actually need it. Instead of a lot of people just seem to buy loads of stuff because they think that's what they need or that's what the salesmen or the magazines have told them. Well, a lot of times it's looking the part, isn't it? You, I mean, everyone has this picture in their mind of what an adventure bike looks like, and and it doesn't. Well, I don't see any resemble. No, there's actually nothing that looks like your bike that the adventure bike. (laughs) (laughs) When I compare the two, (laughs) yet yours is probably more of an adventure bike than ninety nine percent of the bikes out there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and that's the really funny thing is like I had it in the UK, and uh, I had actually as I was going through through Iran. Um, Iran is unbelievably friendly, and the only guy um, that was unfriendly to me was a Polish guy who was riding a 1200 BMW. And I pulled alongside him as we were going through like an Iranian town, and I like flipped up my helmet and smiled and waved. And he just looked down at my bike with this like look of disgust, jealousy. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. And and it was this look of like it was like like what is that? What are you riding? Um, and then as we stopped, you saw that I actually had the list of all of the countries um, down the side of my bike, where I'd been and where I was going. And that was when, and then, and then you sort of see him like in his head going like, oh no, <laughs> <laughs> I've just been done by a Honda C90 and I'm not doing it to look like more of a like superhero than all of these guys, you know, I'm doing it just because I enjoy it and it's the easiest way to, to travel. So many of the people who buy these bikes are doing it just for the image, um, which is fine. But it's when they buy it for the image and then don't do anything. That's <laughs> that's where it really starts to get me. On that first trip, you clearly didn't go with uh, the idea to film it. Not certainly not going with one camera and the amount of planning that you put into this. So when you came back and made this video, it's sort of an afterthought, I guess, at that point. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, as I was on the trip, I was making little YouTube snippets and I was putting it online for people to follow me. And uh, yeah. At the start of the trip, I think I talked in front of a camera maybe twice on like a previous trip. I made a little short thing, but it was it was rubbish. Um, yeah, and then uh, by the time I got back to England, I had uh, half a million YouTube views um, and loads of people asking for a film, which was actually really cool because I was only putting it up there for people to watch. I thought, you know, maybe I could have a film at some point, but I thought maybe it was only going to be like my mum and my next door neighbour that would buy it. But it was just cool to have that many people actually asking for it. And that's why I ask, because you have a huge presence on YouTube for people who are looking for adventure motorcycle trips and adventurous things. And it's kind of neat that that was uh, the result of just almost accidental posting of your videos up there. And then in the end, you end up making this video. The video must have cost a fortune to put together. Uh, yes. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. the total, total budget was about $30,000. Um, which uh, I did do a Kickstarter um, to raise the funds in order to get it made, but uh, then the 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 cost of the film just just spiraled um, because I wanted it perfect. Unfortunately, um, so well, I say unfortunately. Unfortunately, I spent every single penny that I own on it, but fortunately, the film's awesome. Um, so it's kind of a kind of a double-edged sword. I haven't seen this film, the the Malaysia to UK, but I've seen the the some bits on on YouTube and um, quite entertaining. Oh, cool! <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, the stuff that you've seen on YouTube was the stuff that I did in like sweaty Indian hotel rooms with with people sneezing in the next room. So, uh, if you ever see the uh, proper professional film. Um, it's another level. That paints a pretty picture that I'd just like to delete right now. And (laughs) 
So what, what did you do after that? You obviously got the bug to, to travel on your C90 at this point. And what comes next? Then I went back to my job and they, they unfortunately uh, would only put me on three month contracts. And uh, I was asking them to put me on a, on a longer contract and they said, no. So in the end, I said, right, well, if you're only going to employ me for three months, then uh, I'm going to go and do another trip because if I don't know if I've got a job, then I can't risk that job, can I, in theory? Um, the next trip was uh, actually through the Arctic Circle in winter. My workplace weren't giving me a, a long-term contract, so I decided just to go off and do another trip because uh, you can't risk a job that you don't have. And I uh, looked at Google Maps, found a spot that was about two inches away on the screen, which turned out to be the northernmost point in Norway, and um, yeah, set off riding towards uh, my Honda C90. Uh, I came up with the idea, went online to find advice for it, and if you type in like riding a motorcycle in winter um, or how to winterize your motorcycle, all it gives you are instructions on how to put it in a garage uh, <laughs> for like six months. So I just I used a bit of logic. Uh, I got a, got a sleeping bag that's rated down to minus 82 and a really good sleeping mat and um, checked the freezing point of petrol, which was minus 65. And I jumped on the bike and just started riding just to see if I could find my limits, really. Most people, when they're making uh, adventures for motorcycles, head to somewhere it's warm. Matter of fact, I, I think the, the common <laughs> mantra is that if it's getting too cold, you go somewhere where it's warm. Have you ever been checked, Ed? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you don't like the heat. Like, who on earth heads to the Arctic Circle in the wintertime on purpose? Um, well, uh I just wanted the challenge. I wanted to see what what I'm capable of and also um, what the little Honda C90 is capable of. I rode through the great Indian desert when it was 45 degrees uh, above. So I thought, well, let's see, if a, let's see if a Honda will start when it's 45 below. I just wanted an actual challenge and I wanted to kind of know that I was adventuring, if you know what I mean. So that every morning when you set off, you're like, I'm doing something. I'm actually like achieving something or having a challenge. Um, Kind of like buying a puzzle that isn't assembled. Uh, you buy it because you want to do it and you want to see if you can and get the reward at the end. Otherwise, you just you just buy a photo, really. <laughs> Is this the same bike that you started out on that you were riding on this Arctic trip? Uh, yes, yeah, it is, yeah. Um, uh, I changed the engines uh, for different trips uh, to have different purposes. So on the Malaysia trip, I had the standard uh, 90 engine because you can get all of the parts in Southeast Asia. Um, in Europe, most of the engines are the 110 engines. Uh, so I got one of those. And now uh, on the current uh, Alaska to Argentina trip, we've actually got uh, Chinese 125 engines because you can get those parts over here, but you can't get the original Honda 90 parts. And everything bolts up. Yeah, yeah. Our engines were $200 brand new off eBay. They're good for about 50,000 K before you might need to change a piston or something which some people scoff at, but when it's $200 for a new engine, I would just prefer to say, well, the 50,000 K service uh, just costs you $200. And uh, yeah, um, and you get a new engine. And it actually comes with a new spark plug as well. So you save yourself some dollars <laughs> with that. <laughs> the ultimate in budgeting. That's fantastic. But what about the rest of the bike? Does it hold up well? Yeah. Except um, when you cut a hole in the frame. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, I ended up having a little bit of a whoopsie. Um, um, I ended up getting a 155cc racing engine, uh, which I dropped in the bike, which was actually brilliant because up to about 50 mile an hour, my C90 is faster than a car that has about 200 horsepower. 
um, which is absolutely brilliant when you pull up at traffic lights because um, you can see the boy racers thinking that they're the man um, and then you uh, pull away from them doing a wheelie. But the one problem is that in order to fit that engine in, uh, I had to cut a little chunk out of the frame. And that's when I learned the phrase Honda knows best, uh, because after about 2000 miles, my bike actually broke in two. And as I was riding along the road, I was riding along, like, like talking to myself, going, I'm sure my handlebars are getting closer towards me. Um, and I was looking at the ground clearance of the engine, thinking, I'm sure that's getting lower. And my headlight was angling up more and more. And it was because my bike had actually broken in the middle. Yeah, and uh, the handlebars were actually getting a lot closer to my waist until they were nearly on them. Um, but yeah, so I uh, went around my friend Duncan's house and we uh, dropped the engine out, welded it all back up, made it stronger than original and uh, posted it off to Alaska. Let's not jump into Alaska just yet. We have to get Rachel in here. Where does Rachel come into the scene? <laughs> uh, well, by uh, it was when we met, which was in June 2013. I was giving presentations around the UK about my previous uh, motorcycle trips and Rachel was at a Horizons Unlimited rally in order to get some info on how to do Alaska to Argentina solo. And I was presenting at one of those uh, rallies. We met and the rest is history, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I saw, I was sat there watching him doing presentations. I remember turning around saying, saying I think I've fallen slightly in love. So <laughs> I went up to him and... Um, yeah, it was sort of late at night, having a few beers. And uh, three weeks after we met, I invited him to come to Alaska with me. And uh, he said yes, luckily. So I, I picked the one guy that could actually do it and wanted to do it. So, so you, you sort of felt like you fell in love watching the, the presentation on stage. Yes, yeah, it's when he stuck his tongue to the pole. I thought, what an idiot. I was like, <laughs> I've, got to, I've got to meet this guy. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was very fun to watch. I think because he, he was he's so, so fun and silly and... You know, and that's what life should be about. It shouldn't be about taking things seriously. So that's what got me hooked, really. And how did you guys come to the plan of heading to North America? Well, I'd already, uh, I was planning on doing it solo. I'd stayed with a woman in Australia that had ridden, had done the trip herself. And ever since then, it's kind of been on the back burner. And um, that's why I thought, you know, I definitely want to do it. I was going to do it on a uh, Yamaha XT250. And I literally just went to the Horizons Rally just to get some info and advice and ended up leaving with a boyfriend. So <laughs> um, so that's that's where the idea for the trip came. Uh, doing it on the, the 90s is, is uh, sort of Ed's idea, really. I realised he wasn't going to part with his bike. And um, he ended up having one left over from a trip he did back from Mongolia. And I got it for Christmas. And uh, I love it now. I wouldn't want to do the trip on any other bike. I wanted it Cadbury's purple, so he painted it for me as well, and and that's the bike I've got now. So they're just so much fun. As soon as you sit on it, it's fun. It's never far to fall, which is great because I fall off quite a lot because learning to ride off road, and yeah, it's just it's just brilliant. And where did you begin riding, Rachel? Um, I passed my test in two thousand and nine, but um, both my uh, brothers and my dad ride, and they had all their bikes lined up to go on a holiday once. And Mum was like, "Where's your bike?" I was like, "Yeah, where is my bike?" So I did my test, but then I, I went off backpacking for a year and a half and didn't ride. So uh, when I came back, I was a bit rusty. Um, but two months later, I bought a, a brand new CBR 600 double R sports bike. So I, I was tearing around on that when I met Ed. So um, <laughs> as you can see, I've downsized somewhat. <laughs> it's just a bit yeah. of a, a culture shock for you, isn't it? Riding around on your 600, then go down to the C90. Yeah, yeah. I got, I got the Yamaha 250, the XT250, which I loved, and yeah, down to the 90. Um, so yeah, it was quite a change. But you know, once I got the speed thing out of my system, I have way more fun on the, the 90 than I do on the sports bike. 
you know, the good thing about the 90s, you can go really slow and still have fun. You can have fun at 15 miles an hour, you know, 30k or whatever. You can't have that fun on on a sports bike unless you're crawling in between traffic. So, Talk about the trip that you're on now. What is the, the overview of this trip? Um, absolute chaos, actually. <laughs> like I said, even when Ed is, is supervised, he's still uh, having fun. But, I mean, it was initially going to be 18 months. And um, when we were on the Kenai Peninsula, I was looking at a map and I was like, oh, well, it's only that far over to the, you know, the other side of Canada and we've got a six-month visa. So <laughs> maybe we should ride in Canada in the winter. And, you know, Ed loves winter as well. So um, we, we've ended up kind of adding a, another year onto the trip just like that because we're, we're going to ride to Newfoundland. Um, then we're going to drop down to Tennessee and try and do some of the Trans-America Trail. Um, I don't know if we'll get to, as far as Oregon because of, there might be a lot of snow over the passes. But, yeah, so that's added quite a lot more time, uh, a lot more mileage. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's what's great It's just having the freedom to do that. Once again, uh, that's the problem of Google Maps. You can like look at like the whole of planet Earth on one screen and go, oh, yeah, I'll just pop over there. <laughs> and, the, and the thing is for us, it was just an idea at first. And then it was like, I want to challenge myself. You know, I used to feel the cold and I thought I'd challenge myself, you know, the bike. And, and then we've mentioned it to a few people and they're like, we can't do that. It's impossible. You know, you can't do that. And instantly I was like, all right, yeah. Oh, yeah. OK, watch me. And it was, yeah, um, my friend Graham summed it up as rebellious defiance. Uh, so as soon as everyone told us we couldn't do it, that was it. We were doing it regardless, at least going to try. You land in Alaska and then plan to ride two Honda C90s down the coast while you're, you're going to South America originally, and then you decide to veer off. What was that trip like from landing in Alaska to where you are now? Uh, it, was, it was quite funny. We landed at, uh, at the end of July in Anchorage and um, rode up to Prudhoe Bay, didn't we, on the Dalton yeah. Highway. um, yeah so we were there in august um i think we entered canada in october didn't we yeah and then rode the alaska highway where we actually hit some of our coldest temperatures on the alaska highway we were sort of uh, riding in minus 20 and sleeping in minus 25 um so that's kind of where we got we just got the bug for the cold weather really didn't we Mm. we loved it but um i'm sure ed can explain some of the other chaos that happened uh yeah, well, yeah, because uh, yeah, we're trying to trying to sort of think how to how to summarise it really. Um, yeah, we we went up to the uh, top of the Dalton Highway at Prudhoe Bay so that we could get to the northernmost road um, in the Americas. Uh, and then as we toured around Alaska, uh, we ended up doing yeah probably close to like six thousand k um, in Alaska, just seeing all of it. Um, yeah, and I don't know really. Yeah, it's just yeah, and then it. Then it turned into turned into ice and snow, and we were still on our slick road tires. No, oh, yeah. <laughs> so um, we ended up uh, playing some good games of uh, what I now call bike bowling, um, which is where you're going down the road at about 45 mile an hour, um, and you catch a rut, and your bike then spins out, and you basically see how far you can throw it down the road <laughs> as you slide alongside it. Yeah, I won that competition. <laughs> I went down the road by 30 meters on my back, just like wondering where is this going to end. But yeah, it did get me two up on the competition. So. <laughs> which is good why you can, you can do that with the little bikes as well i bent my foot peg because of it and instead of having to spend out loads for a foot peg you just get a hammer and hit it back into place and carry on the whole bike's made of steel so you can actually sort of bend things back into shape whereas all the modern stuff is made of uh, aluminium so it just basically snaps you're now sitting in canmore and this is part of this deviation you made on the trip you came down the coast of vancouver and now you've decided that you're going to run across canada as opposed to going straight down uh yes yeah basically yeah um 
Yeah, mainly because uh, I really like riding through cold. That's why I went through the Arctic Circle. Mm. And yeah, and then then people just kept saying that we can't do it, and it was getting more and more annoying. Um, it's it's for it's for two reasons really. I mean, as much as I get annoyed being told that I can't do things, the thing that annoys me more is that when other people get told it, but they don't have quite the level of defiance that me and Rach have, um, then they'll just go, okay, I won't do it. I'll yeah. just sit at home. Um, and that's what really annoys me. Whereas... It's all the armchair warriors and the naysayers, isn't it? It's yeah. kind of like sticking, you know, one or two fingers up at them and going, no, you know, you can't, you know, you can't go around telling people that you can't do stuff. And it's inspiring and encouraging people to take that leap of faith to do that dream you know and it doesn't matter if you fail you know you tried it i'd rather fail instead of someone else telling me that i'm going to fail mm. Mm. it's quite it, it's happened quite a few times on facebook now is that i'll get tagged um in somebody else's facebook feed that i don't even uh know because they'll say oh no me and some friends want to do a tour of europe on 50 cc scooters or something you know i'm going to do a silly trip dressed as cartoon animals i don't know and then all they'll get is all the armchair warriors going, no, you can't, don't be stupid, you can't do that. And then, and then, and then I really like it when somebody goes, well, actually, there's this guy called Ed March, and he's been riding around the world on this Honda 90, <laughs> and he's far more of an idiot than any of you guys are. Um, and that's when you see all of the warriors like, oh, damn it. <laughs> We've actually been done, um, you know. Uh, it can be done, and you just need to be, like, vaguely sensible yeah, don't um, be re don't be too reckless, you know. You still have a bit of self-preservation, I guess. Yeah, but. but just have fun. We're going to take a break for a minute, but we'll be right back. And afterwards, we're going to talk about some tips that Ed and Rachel have for riding in cold weather. And obviously, they are extreme cold weather. Stick around. Now, I want you to grab yourself a pen because I'm about to give you something for free just for listening to Adventure Rider Radio. One of our sponsors is audible.com, and we have a deal with them. If you go there and you sign up now, you pay nothing to begin with, but you get your first Audible book free. And there's some great books on here I want to tell you about. So the address to go to is audibletrial.com forward slash ARR. And, of course, the ARR is for Adventure Rider Radio. And that link will be in our show notes. And you can go there and you can sign up for all kinds of Audible books. Now, I don't know if you've listened to audiobooks before, but you're listening right now to a podcast. And a book is much like that. It's a complete story read by someone. It's a professional reader. So they sound really good. You can check them out online and listen to them before you buy them. But you can listen to books like Sam Manicom, for instance, has Into Africa and his other books on there as well. You can listen to Jeremy Craker, uh, Motorcycle Therapy. So... Go there now, sign up, audibletrial.com forward slash ARR, and get your free book today just for listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Hey, you want something refreshing? Traction E-Rag magazine has been around since 2008. This is an online electronic magazine that's written for riders by riders, and it's 100% volunteer driven. They cover all types of things in there. There's travel stories, but a lot of off-road stuff. This is truly an off-roaders magazine. But you can subscribe for free. You have nothing to lose. You can go to their website, www.tractionerag.ca. It's in Canada. And subscribe for free. Why not give it a try? 
And now we're back with Ed March and Rachel Lasham. I admire your love for riding in the cold. And a few episodes ago, we did an, an episode on uh, riding and dealing with weather, uh, particularly water, not so much snow. But what are some tricks that you guys have developed for riding in the winter, which could be crossed over, of course, just cold weather riding in the in the summertime or in the spring and fall? Uh, well, we've, we've only just put studs on the tires, which are great because otherwise I spend the whole time like just going waiting for when you're going to go down. So uh, they've been really good. But we've um, got some snowmobile helmets because we found in minus 19, if you've got a pin lock on your visor, it can end up icing up. And as soon as you breathe on the visor, it ices up. Um, so we've got heated snowmobile visors now which are brilliant. Otherwise, you can't see because you can't flip a visor up in minus 19 because <laughs> you really can't breathe. <laughs> Your eyeballs freeze. So um, that's the thing. And, and getting good boots. If you put winter motorcycle boots into Google or something, you get some really pathetic mm. things that go down to like minus two, maybe. Um, so we've got some snowmobile boots as well because it's the feet that really stop you. We've got heated grips, but if your feet get cold, you just, yeah, it's game over for the day, really, until you warm up again. Yeah. Heated grips are, without doubt, the the first thing that anyone riding in winter should get. Yeah, um, so important to, that your hands can work. I mean, we haven't got a clutch and we don't use the front brake. Mine's frozen. But um, generally, if your hands aren't working, it can get really dangerous. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't do it without those. And, and getting like, I think you call them hippo hands here, uh, just to block the wind off your hands and your gloves. It makes a huge difference. Yeah, those are the big bags that go around the end of yeah. your handlebars to keep your hands out of the wind. Yeah, incredible with, uh, yeah. like you say, with the heated um, hand grips. But your machines will handle, the alternators are big enough to, to pump out that kind of current? Um, we've got some uh, aftermarket 100-watt uh, generators. So um, that's just enough, really. I mean, our lights are about 10 watts and heated grips are about 25 watts. So it leaves you a bit more uh, to play with. But, I mean, I've got a heated vest and I haven't used it yet. It just hasn't been cold enough. I sort of wanted to acclimatise, really, if you start relying on heated clothing. Um, that's for a longer trip. I mean, if you're only going out for a weekend, then, yeah, chuck a heated vest on. But if it's for a long period of time, you don't want to be relying on heated clothing. Um, but that's been brilliant, isn't it? It's just mm. it's, it's enough to keep the keep us warm, yeah. uh, just that 100 watts. Yeah. You don't really need any more. The wind chill as well. If you're, um, you know, when, when we were riding, when it was, like, uh, approaching minus 20, the difference in wind chill between doing like 80k an hour and like 50k an hour mm. is massive. So although you end up doing the whole tortoise and hare thing, if you slow down, your body can make the heat fast enough so that it doesn't get sucked out by the wind. Um, yeah. Whereas if you're just going absolutely flat out, you end up so cold that you'll have to stop. And not only will you be slower, you'd also be a lot more unhappy. Um, because you're going hot, cold, hot, cold. Yeah. Whereas if you just ride that bit slower, you'll just sort of stay like warm, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully. We also, when we first met, we after months after we'd met, we we're like, oh, we haven't even ridden together yet. So we, we decided to ride to Germany for a winter motorcycle rally called the Elefantentreffen, which is on the uh, sort of statistically the coldest weekend in uh, at the end of January. So we thought if we still get on then when it's cold and muddy and, and wet or whatever, then, you know, we'll be good for this trip. But what we did is with our leg shields, we put Velcro down the sides of them and got one of those foam camping mats. Um, you just cut it in half, Velcro it down, you know, put it on the sides. So as you ride, it wraps around you. So you're then blocking um, the wind from hitting your legs as well. So that, that was really good, wasn't it? Mm, that yeah. helps a lot. Yeah, that made a massive difference. So we'll uh, probably do that again. 
Uh, that's a fabulous idea because, you, like you say, it's the wind blowing on you that's the absolute worst. But Velcro yeah. and a mat, that's fantastic and extremely simple and inexpensive. Yeah, it costs like a few dollars, really. And and it yeah. doesn't matter if you you know you lose it or whatever else. I mean, they look ridiculous going down the road, but it's not about looking cool. It's <laughs> sort of comfort over style, really. And yeah. just, yeah, it's, it's really cheap way. And, and once you're done with it, once it warms up, you throw them away. You haven't got some kit that you need to sort of send anywhere. Yeah. Because you don't have this big financial like commitment. You say, oh, no, you know, I just spent a couple of hundred dollars on those leg shields. Yeah. Whereas we just spent like $10 on some camping mats from a budget store. Um, mm. So, yeah, it's just another one of those things that just means that you don't have this sort of burden, which a lot of people have of all of this kit. They'll set out on a trip, you know, with, I don't know, just all of this extra spare stuff. It's heavy as well. I mean, yeah. foam mats don't weigh anything. No. And after about two months, they normally realize, oh, I have got too much stuff. Well, they can't actually throw it away because although it is too heavy and they'll never need it, they've actually spent so much money on it that they can't justify throwing it away. I mean, you can post it back, but if you try doing that in the middle of Mongolia, uh, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> and uh, clearly temperature is going to make a difference on this question, but how long do you ride for before you just have to stop? The cold gets to you. Um, it's usually, I mean, when it was getting really cold, it's probably a maximum about 120k a day, wasn't it? It's, yeah. But that's before we had the proper gear. Like I've got um, a Dakota overall coverall suit. It makes me look like a fat ninja, but it keeps me really warm. Um, so that I'll be able to ride, ride longer now with having that. But as we we're coming down the Alaska Highway, we we didn't have any of that, did we? We didn't no. have any the extra gear. We never so, leather motorcycle boots. For yeah, one bit. <laughs> so your feet are freezing. So when it when we didn't have the correct gear, it was like a couple of hours, and then once your your foods run out, because food's really crucial to staying warm. You know, it heats a byproduct of your metabolism, really. Um, so then you do need to to stop to eat or to have a hot a hot drink, hot chocolate sort of works quite well. But it's a yeah, maximum about 120 k's, and then sometimes it's the snow that slows you down or the ice, and it, yeah, it it really varies. Like Ed said, if you go slower, the wind chills less, and and then you can keep going for a bit longer. Or talking to people as well. Yeah, um, <laughs> do that a lot. <laughs> we've worked out we've actually spent so far on this trip more time talking to people in car parks than we actually have spent riding. Um, it's absolutely mental. Like. Just, just just how much of a crowd appears around two mm. Honda 90s. <laughs> and that's what's brilliant as well with, with the bikes because you, out, you've got 3.7 litres in the tank and it'll get you about 180, 190 kilometres. So you're forced to stop all the time, which is brilliant because you meet more people then. You know, when someone tells me, oh, I can get, you know, 800k in a tank, I'm like, well done. <laughs> Who did you speak to? You know, what did you do? What stories have you got? And it's like, oh, nothing. I didn't, I didn't stop. So that's why it's good. But it's also good because it means you can stop and warm up a little bit and it's... It's sort of self-regulating, really, isn't it? Mm. Uh, especially when we had our bikes smothered in Christmas decorations. That, uh, <laughs> that certainly got people stopping and talking. That's the essence, when you said that. That's the essence of, of an adventure, isn't it, really? It's connecting with people and learning things about the places you're going to. And, and that is part of the idea of slowing down. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, all my blogs at the moment are just about, you know, how wonderful people have been and what they've done for us. I mean, it never ceases to amaze me you know, the wonderful things that people do for others. And, and that's what all my blogs are about at the moment. So if we, if we didn't stop, you know, if we didn't get involved with, with people, we wouldn't have all these stories and, you know, sort of moments. Uh, so, yeah, that's why it's important to do that, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's the same as, um, it's, and that's, that's one thing that a lot of people pick up on my uh, film as well, is that 
is that a lot of people think, oh, yeah, it's an adventure motorcycle film. But when people watch it, they sort of realise, well, it isn't actually about riding a motorbike. Like, the motorbike's just the tool that gets you to the interesting things. Um, and it allows you to meet people and do strange things because you can't have a, like, 72-minute film of a camera looking at somebody riding a motorcycle because it would be mind-numbingly boring. Um, <laughs> what you'll have is every minute or so maybe you'll have like five seconds of riding a motorcycle mm. just to help show that you are like progressing and to help the person feel that you are moving across the world but yeah it's the same you know with the video updates and with our blogs um and everything to do with that 99 percent of it is actually when we're stopped yeah and that's why i love uh traveling sort of off season in inverted commas or winter uh, there's no RVs on the roads and no other tourists. Uh, everyone seems to have forgotten how annoying tourists are. So when you go there, you know, they just embrace you. They want you in their home. They want to talk to you and spend time with you. And you've got no other competition from other people, really. You know, you're the only you're the only ones there in winter. Yeah. And then you really get, you know, to, to be involved in people's real lives. You know, a town, what it's really like when it's not overrun by tourists. Um, so I think that's a massive benefit. And I think we'll struggle when we are in a place at you know peak season, it's going to be going to be interesting actually. They're bringing you into their house because they're concerned that there's something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> they're thinking these these people need help. There's a pair and they both need help. Hypothermia, I don't know what it is. They need help. <laughs> we have had that before. We we asked we were at Radium Hot Springs and we asked this lady, oh where can we camp? And it was cold and snowing outside and she was just horrified. And in the end, we said no, we're fine. We've got good sleeping bags. And she sort of pointed in a direction and. And sort of five minutes later, we got all our gear on just about to leave. And she came running up and she's like, right, I've, I've booked you into motel. I'm getting it. I'm a mother and I can't have you sleeping outside. We all need to get a good night's sleep tonight. So please go and do it. This is on Christmas Eve. It was and it was absolutely amazing. We just couldn't believe it. And we said, well, we can't do that. And she's like, no, I insist. I I really want you to. And and that's the thing, you know, they, they are mothers or they, you know, they've got kids or... They just, yeah, they think you're crazy. And it's, I've, just, I've discovered as well, it's all relative, you know. If we told someone that treks to the North Pole that we're riding in winter, they'd be like, oh, cool, that's brilliant. If you talk to someone that's never camped in winter and never goes out, they think you're absolutely mental and that they, they do need to help you and stop you from dying. Yeah. Um, they just can't relate to it. We've, a few times we've mentioned that we're, we want to camp. And yeah. it happened a couple of times. We, we were at Toad River and we put the tent up. It was minus 20 and... We went to get back in just to have a quick warm up. And before we knew it, the lady's like, oh, there's been a good Samaritan. The owner's giving you room number 10 to sleep in. We're like, what? And there's like, yeah. And they didn't want to sleep in outside. So they gave us a hotel room. It's, it's, it's almost like they can't comprehend that we have camped up to the point where we've met them. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> like, no, look, like you can't camp. It's impossible. It's like, no, like we camped last night. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, no, that's it. I've got to give you a room. Um, yeah. Which is awesome, you know, and we'll never really, like, sniff at it at all. But No, it's, it's, it's very um, kind. But it, it also, like, you know, like, as much as you do enjoy getting into the bed and if you need to go to the toilet, you actually can without, yeah. like, a 10-minute procedure. Um, <laughs> but the main thing is as you're in the room, you're like, wow, you know, like, people are awesome. Yeah. Um, we um, don't need this, um, but we're very thankful for it. But the main thing is that is that this person has gone out of their way just yeah. to help us. And we, and we never expect it. So whenever it happens, it's just like, wow, you know, you never appreciate it any less each time. Every time it's just like, wow, this is incredible. We even had a, a guy, we were sat in a Tim Hortons and he gave us a, a Tim Hortons card. Go, oh, here you go. This will keep you warm. 
we thought he said it had about $15 on him. And when he left, we went to get a drink and it had $50 on it. Wow. You know, wow. this random guy's just giving us, you know, wanting to keep us warm. And it, it, I was in Watson Lake and I only had these leather motorcycle boots and we went into a sort of pawn shop to try and find some boots and none of them fit. And the owner's friend was in there and he goes, come with me. And we jumped into his truck and he drove me to his house and then presented me with all these winter boots that he doesn't really use and uh, gave me a pair of winter boots. And, you know, it's people going out of their way to help you. Um, and what's brilliant is that it has a knock on effect. So someone will do something for us and we'll go and do something for someone else. You know, they, they say pay it forward here. And it's brilliant because it will just keep going. You know, we'll do something for someone and they'll do something for someone else. And I think that's amazing, really, sort of the power of it. And that's fantastic. And you're running into these things probably because you're spending time talking to people, meeting people because of the way you're traveling. So, I mean, it, it just, it does, the way you describe the whole thing, this C90 has no adverse effects whatsoever. I mean, it, it really makes your trip. Yeah, massively, even probably more so because we're on the little bikes. People are like, what are you doing? You know, you're crazy. We need, we obviously need to help you. You're obviously not right in the head. So, uh, which is quite funny. I mean, it did drive us nuts at, at one point because people kept going, don't you know it's winter? And we're like, oh, thank you. I, I wondered what all this white stuff was. And, we're from England. And it was just, oh, my God. And it was driving us crazy because it was just constant of are you crazy what are you doing and you guys really need to head south and we're like no no we're riding in winter and then they just treat you like idiots i think it's because we do look quite young um they instantly think that you're naive you're stupid you're gonna die uh, and once we actually talk to them and explain you know all the preparations and things we've got they're like oh you're not actually as crazy as i thought you're still crazy but you're not as crazy <laughs> Um, so yeah, that, it's been interesting and it's, it's quite hard sometimes just to sort of, you know, swallow it and just accept it. There's loads of paradoxes that you end up in by riding a Honda 90. Um, the first one, which is brilliant, is that we're different because we're riding the world's most popular motorcycles, um, which I love the concept of that. Because <laughs> people are like, wow, you guys are so different to everyone else because you ride the world's most popular vehicle. Just loads of weird things. and and. The thing that's really cool is that you end up with so many people thinking that the C90 is a really ridiculous mode of transport. They see you and they're like, they're like, what are you doing? This is completely stupid. Um, I now want to talk to you um, because you can't possibly ride around the world on a Honda 90. But the actual reality is that it's the easiest bike to tour on. Because every time you get to a border, nobody gives you any hassle. Parts are basically free. Our tires, uh, we saw some the other week for $25 each, and they were Dunlop tires. A brand new engine's $200. So even if, you know, if somebody sabotages your bike or you've, or it gets run over or something, um, there's never a cost that can actually hit you. Mm. Um, fuel's cheap. So the C90 does make an awesome trip, but mm. kind of in really weird ways because... <laughs> Because you end up with people thinking you're completely insane, but you're actually not. It's like the most sensible vehicle to take. We've had it before where people are like, you need, you need a bigger bike. What are you doing? It's like, why would I need a bigger bike on ice? <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. And I think if people know, I think we need to get more people to actually sit on the bike and have a little ride round and just sort of open their eyes to it, really. Yeah. It's just, it, 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 it's brilliant the power that salesmen have now in order to convince people that to ride on mud they need a heavier bike with a with a much higher center of gravity. The like marketing is amazing. For instance, like um, modern modern TV manufacturers actually convince you in their adverts 
um, to buy a new TV, even though you're watching that advert on your TV going, wow, the colours are so bright and vivid. I'm like, yes, because it's because it's your telly. <laughs> you don't need to buy the new one because you're watching the advert on yours. Um, it's like taking a test drive for a new car, but still driving your old one. That's the power of marketing is is amazing. Well, we always think these things are going to make us happy in life. You know, that getting the, the new couch is somehow going to make us feel yeah. so much better than the old couch. And, <laughs> and rarely it does because six months goes by yeah. and it's now the old couch again. And somebody's telling you yeah, it is exactly, new one. Yeah. <laughs> I would be remiss not to ask you about safety when it comes to riding in the wintertime. I mean, you even mentioned going down and sliding down the road. And of course, when you yeah. slide down the road, you could easily hit another vehicle or, or cause something else to happen. Yeah. How do you weigh that up? How do you deal with the safety issue? I mean, I found when we were riding on the road slicks, as soon as there was a vehicle coming from either direction, I would pull over and stop or go slower so that I wouldn't come off. Um, the only times I've come off has been when the road has been completely empty. And, yeah. I, you know, I've been riding at a decent speed um, because it's it's really not safe. You know, we don't want to cause a, an accident. You know, we don't want to get injured or injure anyone else. We don't want to be a danger. So, so that's what we do. I mean, I've got a, a trucker gave me a high-vis um, sort of visibility vest. So I've got that now, which is great. And just making sure the lights are working. But mainly it was just if there's a lot of traffic, pull over. You know, people can get very impatient and overtake in really sort of stupid places. So we find just, well, you know, we're not in a rush. So we move over, let the traffic go past, and then we're back onto the road. Um, so that was just sort of the safest way. Uh, we did actually get a lift from Prince George to Hope because the roads were so deadly and we only had our road slicks. Um, there was hardly any visibility. It was really, really busy. And we just sort of took the executive decision to, um, to get a lift. And we thought we'd leave it up to fate. And we were sat in an Indian restaurant having some food when a guy came past and recognised Ed off the internet. And uh, he said, oh, I'm going to Vancouver. Do you need a lift? <laughs> and if that's not fate handing you a card and, yeah, you know, yeah. I don't know what it is. So um, we did that. And someone said, oh, you cheated. And I said, you know, the only thing we cheated was death. You know, yeah. it's it's not an ego thing of saying, oh, we did it. It's, you know, you've got, a, you know, not reckless. We haven't got a death wish. So times like that, we have done something else. But otherwise, it's, yeah, just being very aware of your surroundings, which you are on a motorcycle. Yeah. It's um, unfortunately it's the people in the cars that aren't quite so aware. So um, yeah, um, they don't they don't expect to see a, a motorcycle in winter, and even in summer they don't even seem to notice you're there sometimes. So that's been the yeah the tricky yeah. bit. Yeah, every time that we've ended up throwing the bikes down the road, um, it's been on a completely empty section which obviously isn't the choice to throw your bike down the road but <laughs> it's kind of like um, you're pushing it a bit more yeah and it's kind of like if you're running late for work when there's that really long stretch of road you will like open it up just to try and make up a bit of time but when you get to the junction or go past the school you'll still slow down even though you're late for work and it's kind of the same as when you're on ice you're like okay i'm in the middle of nowhere like i can see the curvature of the earth on this road um, I'm going to open it up because I know that if it goes wrong, all that's going to happen is we're going to get an interesting photo um, <laughs> of one of us on the floor smiling. Whereas as soon as it got really busy, which was around Prince George, um, which was then when we sort of started to come back into like civilization, that was when, because we were on the slicks and the visibility was so bad, we decided to get the lift. And actually, um, when we were getting the lift in the truck, we actually watched a car drive straight into the back of a parked truck. Mm, um, so you didn't see it. Yeah. It was <laughs> an absolutely truck. massive truck. It was like a couple of houses, this thing. And the driver was like, oh, I didn't see you there. <laughs> Thinking yeah. like, right, if a car driver doesn't see like a semi in this, like 
there's no yeah <laughs> there is no point in riding this and <laughs> that was when we were vindicated and it's like yeah you know yeah so what you know we got a lift for like 500k or whatever it was um but it was because we were heading to the warmer part of canada which was vancouver so we couldn't put studs in because by the time mm. we got to vancouver we'd have worn them out it's all about mm. weighing up the risks and yeah and just making sure you're visible and um yeah it's just being careful and that's I think it helps when people think you're crazy, but then you explain to people what you do and they're like, oh, you, you have actually thought about this. You know, you, you aren't a danger on the road. And it was very funny. We got pulled over by an RCMP officer <laughs> in Lake Louise. Um, just as we rolled in, we came to a four-way stop and I pull her and, I, and the lights go and the siren, oh no, what's, what's going on? And he didn't know what to do with us. He was speechless, he was gobsmacked, he, he was on the radio to his colleague and he's like, so, so they're not doing anything wrong? They've, if they want to ride, they can ride. <laughs> and um, it was just hilarious because first, you know, we pointed out we got studs and we got high vis and stuff. And yeah, he, he just really didn't know what to do. So he, we went past and he totally thought we were doing something illegal. And after he established he, we weren't, he was like, can I get a photo? <laughs> so we had a photo with him and, and then we went off. Yeah. And it was just it was just very funny just to watch his brain just like he, he said, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen. He said, I've never seen a motorcycle in winter. <laughs> yeah. Those are the reactions um, that we do get from the police. It's normally just to stop us for a photo. Yeah. I mean, I was in, um, as I was riding through Iran, I actually got stopped at a military checkpoint, which if you watch like Fox News or uh, BBC or anything, you know, you're basically instantly going to get shot, according to them. And I stopped. They were looking at my bike and uh, they invited me in for some tea. And we were sharing photos of our family, like where we lived and all this stuff. I was like, it's just brilliant. I'm I'm sat here with the Iranian army having tea. <laughs> Very civilised. <laughs> and yeah, um, yeah. And the same as when we got pulled over by the police here. They're just like, what are you yeah. guys doing? Like, you know, like, I can see that you're obviously like friendly, you know, and you're not actually really risking your life, you mm. know. We had a guy, yeah, uh, some couple of police had set up a checkpoint just sort of uh, south of Chetwind and they pulled us over and they saw we had road slicks didn't say anything you know oh how's your light at the back looked round said yeah that's fine even though it's covered in mud and they they just wanted a photo and they just wanted to <laughs> talk to us really we've, we've got pulled over four times now twice as in Alaska for going too slow which was quite funny because the second time I thought we were speeding and um, <laughs> yeah the other two were just to, to, to have photos and basically they just couldn't quite comprehend what they were seeing so uh, but generally they've been lovely so. I can imagine that's rather odd to see a motorcycle and and then of course on the Honda C90 you're getting you know you're getting acclimatized to the speeds you do you might push 40 kilometers an hour you feel like you're going real fast I guess yeah that's another thing he was like oh, what speeds can you do you you shouldn't be on the main highway and we like we never go on the main highway you know when we can't when we can help it but we had to go on a little stretch to get into lake louise and um, we we cruise at sort of 80 kilometers an hour but with my my fat ninja suit i'm not quite as aerodynamic so i've lost about 10k an hour <laughs> uh, which is a bit of a shame um but yeah so we we have to avoid the main highways don't we we just can't we can't build them so when we're crossing uh, canada we're leaving in a few days um, we're just going to have to do secondary roads and gravel roads and play it by ear, really. You know, if a road's too busy, we have to go on to another one and, and, and that. And it depends on, I mean, ice is fine. They're, it's glorious to ride on ice now with these studs. Uh, it's when it starts snowing and there's not enough snow. There was too much snow for the studs and, and not enough for the tyres to bite in because we've got some aggressive off-road tyres. So, but um, that's going to be interesting, <laughs> especially in Ontario when we get dumped with lots of snow most definitely you know yeah. you're filming as you go right now <laughs> how are you managing to film and ride in the snow one-handed uh, is how <laughs> i do it <laughs> it's very good <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I've got a GoPro and I haven't even turned it on yet. <laughs> well, that's all he does is ride one-handed with his, with his camera. I've always got mine firmly on the handlebars. <laughs> He's a bit more skilled than I am. But I was saying, I've got a GoPro and I haven't even turned it on yet. I don't even know how to turn it on. It's been in the bottom of my rucksack for six months. I've got a sort of Canon 70D that we set up for landscape shots and things when we've got the time. An action shot, Ed films on his Panasonic Lumix. You can literally just pull it out of your pocket and film straight away. Although we used it as a hockey stick the other day when we were playing ice hockey and we scrapped the lens. So <laughs> we had the camera on the end of a pole. This is a bit of a shame, but otherwise it's, it's quite difficult because it's when it's really cold, you kind of just want to push on and get to your destination. You know, you're looking forward to something hot to, to drink or to eat. And you kind of have to force yourself to stop to film sometimes. Mm. Um, it's, it becomes a, a chore almost because you don't want to take your gloves off and you're really cold. But it's always worth it getting that footage. So it's, it's about being disciplined. Um, but it, it's not making sure it doesn't encroach on the trip, really. That it doesn't become too much of a chore and it takes away from the trip. And we always make sure it, that doesn't happen. It's usually, you know, when something fun's happening, we film it straight away. And if we miss it, we miss it. You can't reenact anything. So No, we can't act. We've tried, and it's absolutely it's cringe, horrible. Oh, it's cringeworthy. Horrible. <laughs> so every, everything that everything that people will see on the video updates and stuff is real, um, and it's you know as it happens, which is why we don't have multiple camera angles and and everything else, you know, because that shows that you've been stood there for ten minutes redoing it. Um, so it's just you know if we happen to film it, we film it. I've had some spectacular crashes, um, but unfortunately I've been behind Ed because I don't like to ride in front because I get nervous of Phil I'm being watched and um so we've missed out on a couple of crashes so we might get some accident cams or something like that um, or that's the time to put your GoPro on the back of his facing backwards yeah <laughs> I think I might have to do that actually that'd the, be a good idea the problem though is that um GoPro don't allow you to power the camera from the bike um so the problem that you have is that if we've you know if we've got like a 12 hour day um and a GoPro lasts for two hours you'd need to have uh, six batteries on charge. Um, and you'd also need to know when when the first battery is stopped so that you can then change it over, mm. um, which is the real problem with, with GoPro. I've, I've got no idea why they don't do um, an attachment so that you can power it from a, from a bigger battery or from mm. a bike. But yeah, that's the real problem with a GoPro is that it only records when you tell it to. Um, I just heard recently somebody saying that, um, and, and, I, and I saw the, the diagram of they're just plugging the USB plug in through a ported uh, case, and then they're they're using that to power the GoPro for just that reason, for so they don't have to use the battery. I'm not sure if that's uh, working or not. You can do that. Um, the problem is the uh, connectors on a GoPro go directly onto the circuit board, um, and they're not meant for lots of vibration. So if you have a connector plugged in there permanently on a bike, it'll actually snap the solder joints. Um, and and also by having the ported case, it's not waterproof anymore. Um, it's a bit tricky. We've been trying to find the right things because when I do crash, it happens quite quickly. Um, and everything be going perfectly fine. And then I get a massive violent wobble and high side and land in a pile of snow. Uh, so I wouldn't even have time to turn the camera on. But we're looking at options of getting some accident cams that are waterproof and yeah. sort of that are cheap enough, really. Looking into oh, some... you miss out on some good shots otherwise. So. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm... otherwise it's the aftermath where I'm absolutely buzzing with adrenaline and chatting away like a madman. So that's uh, usually the footage we've got after I've crashed. Yeah, I'm still looking into sponsorship of of some. Um, trying to find some companies that are willing to get a lot of positive PR from all of my video updates. Having footage which I mean already 
the way that we film. Um, there's nobody else that's sort of really filming the way that we do, really. Um, but also actually having constant cameras running on loops on bikes um, is almost unheard of. And there's no filmmakers using it. So just trying to find a company out there that can that can hook me up. So uh, if any of you are listening, then uh, <laughs> feel free to drop me an email. <laughs> there you go. We've talked many times in this show about defining the word adventure. And it's interesting to, to talk to people and, and hear their definitions of it. How would the both of you define the word adventure and what adventure is? And is adversity and time required for it? No, I think an adventure can be as long or short as you want. I think for me, it's getting out of your comfort zone, um, you know, pushing your your limits and knowing what you can achieve, you know, physically and mentally. And, and I think that's that's adventure for me, really. And just seeing new things and doing new things and, and seeing it firsthand. So many people I talk to are like, oh, the, the news says it's really dangerous, but you're saying it's really fun and friendly and, and stuff like that. And it's, you know, you've got to get out there and and do it yourself really yeah yeah and um for me i would i would the, the way that i define adventure is it's the way that i get so many people uh say to me like oh you know i've i've done i've done little trips but nothing compared to what you've done and that's when i say look did you know where you were sleeping the next night and they're like well no i was like well that's exactly what i do you know if you do a three-week trip every three weeks of my trip is three weeks long like so every three weeks we do exactly the same mm, thing just repeating it. yeah the fact that i bolt lots of trips together essentially in order to travel for like sort of six seven eight months um we actually experience the same thing mm. um and it's know. about seeing new things and doing new things isn't it it's, you know that it's yeah. away from the monotony of just nine to five sort of what society wants you to do and yeah it's um yeah it's having fun i think adventure should be fun though yeah, there's, there's, it gets a bit serious sometimes. Yeah, there's so many people whose main goal in doing an adventure is basically to get to the top of a mountain with their bike, wearing their really polished suit, um, have their helmet on, have their sunglasses on, just so they can look like some sort of superhero and pose on top of a mountain going, grr, I'm really manly. Um, and uh, that's really, not, it's really like not what it's about. The photo should be you at the top, you know, like with a smile covered in mud mm. with a broken something or other. I don't know, you know, just having but, achieved something. Yeah. Like, like a story, um, and an actual achievement having got to the top, not basically going, yeah, I got a photo that I look really cool in. Whereas you've got the guy who's got the photo who's like, yeah, you know, you know, this is me and my friend Dave and we rode up the top and he got a puncture halfway up. So he fixed it. And then this guy on a donkey had to give us a lift to get to the shop where the pump worked. Just something like that. Mm. Um, that's what adventure is, is, is having the stuff happen to you that you don't know will happen, I guess. That seems to me that, Ed, the way you just answered that seems to fit in with what I picture is your whole mantra for traveling, is it's about that experience, again, on the way, not the, the notch in the belt at the end. Yeah. Well, no one wants to get to the, the destination. Once you got here, you're like, oh, what an anticlimax. You know, it's all about the, the stuff in between. You know, that's where all the stories, that's all the stuff happens. And as soon as you plan to be somewhere, it becomes about the destination and, and not, you know, all the stuff in between. And that's why you yeah. should never really have a plan. I like to call them ideas now. We just have an idea that we're, we're going to do this. Mm. It's exactly the same as with life. Um, nobody actually cares about getting to the destination. In fact, they're actually normally pretty <laughs> upset when they get to the end. 
Um, and if they got to the end and go, right, what did you do? Well, I look really cool. <laughs> you know, I had a really nice TV and a fantastic mortgage that changed me down for the rest of my life. <laughs> and then you've got the guy who's like in the corner um, and he's in his rocking chair, you know. Could be a bit mental. Yeah, but... <laughs> it's a bit mental. He's probably got a limp and one eye. Um, and he's sat there with a smile on his face and you ask him why he's smiling and he's like, I did absolutely everything yeah. that I could. <laughs> the stories that I've got, the things that I've done, you know, I am actually kind of at home with getting to the end of my life because I probably... I lived it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I lived it and I've worn my body out. So yeah. done, you know, I did everything that I could. Um, and those are the two kinds of people that you basically like see when they get older. It's other people that thought full, they were yeah. doing it right or full of regrets wishing that they'd done it and you know it's yeah it's better to just go and do it and if you regret it after ah, never mind <laughs> go and do something else and how long is this trip going to last <laughs> well good one <laughs> we, we keep saying another two years but as the months go by we still say two years so um we don't i mean we've got all the time in the world it's just the money that we don't have you know tons of um Obviously, in North America, it's a bit more expensive than, than further south. But we think it's going to be another two years until we're in Argentina, I guess. So that'll be about two and a half years long. But, you know, if we end up being able to get some more money and we can continue on, then that's what we'll do, really. Yeah. Well, we're going to put links to your websites in our show notes and uh, everyone can go there and check that out. And I know that you have buttons on there for donations. So when you see what they're doing, you just have to click on the donation button and give them some money and that'll keep them on the road for a little longer and, and keep <laughs> yeah. us the entertainment coming. Yeah, keep the stories, you know. I, I write I write my blogs and Ed does his video updates and as soon as the trip finishes, you know, they'll finish. Unless I'm still three months behind and then they'll go on for another three months. But, um, yeah, so it, it just kind of helps, you know, a dollar or a pound here and there. You know, it really adds up. And, I mean, we're on $20 a day budget each. Um, so, you know, a, a little goes a long way. Um, but it's only it's only if people have enjoyed what we've given them, you know, with the with the writing and the films and the updates. If you if you enjoy it, then, you know, feel free to donate, you know, something something small. But... It's never sort of expected or anything, really. It's, you know, if people appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, it's, I found that it's totally worth it, though, with my blogs. They take hours to write. Um, but just getting a, a message saying, oh, you've inspired me to go and do this or, you know, it's, it makes it so worthwhile, all the hours that I put in it. Even if I only inspired one person a month or one a year, it's, it's still someone and they'll go on to inspire someone else. So mm. it's the same with Ed's videos, the amount of people that have contacted him and said, Oh, I've just bought a C90 and guess where I am? And yeah, it's really cool. So it, I, I didn't quite realise the power of, uh, sort of social media and, and writing and filmmaking. Really. Yeah, definitely. You like the sort of general idea of chaos uh, that this uh, interview has been about, um, then I can uh, thoroughly recommend my film. Uh, in fact, uh, it does come with the uh, better than long way round or your money back guarantee um, <laughs> because I do stand by that because loads of people watch Long Way Round, which is the Charlie Borman and... Uh, Ewan McGregor film and at the end they go that was brilliant I want to do that but I can't because I don't have a million pounds I don't have backup I don't have a camera crew and I don't have medics um whereas whereas as Rach said the amount of people that watch my film um and at the end go that was brilliant I want to do that and I can um and uh, normally I get emails from uh, angry wives saying what have you done my husband's just bought a Honda 90 <laughs> and he thinks he's 14 again um <laughs> 
him and his mates are now planning a trip to go and buy a (laughs) pizza 2000 kilometers away and then bring it back before it goes moldy or just something like that and and i love all those emails that i get um people sending me photos of them in the middle of like china and they've just bought a little like chinese c90 copy and they're going you know look i did it i did this trip here's some photos this is where the wheel fell off and this is where we you know did such and such then we climbed this mountain and then it's just just really cool to see yeah and yeah but that's why it's you know we stand by it because we both love the film and it's brilliant and if it can inspire some more people to get out there and do it you know stop listening to what the media says and just go and have some fun um, and no man, you know, no matter how short or how long or whatever size your bike is, really, just to get out and do it. And as I mentioned before, the film is called A C90 Adventure, Malaysia to UK with Ed March. And you can get it at dirtpunk.co.uk. That is exactly it, yeah. Well, Ed and Rachel, thank you very much for the update. And hopefully we'll get you guys back on. Maybe when you're on the east coast of Canada, even just for a check-in to let us know that everything's yep. going great. <laughs> yeah, that'd be so, great. Yeah. We can let you know if uh, winter got brutal or not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if we survived. Oh, um, and uh, I'm currently writing articles for uh, Canada Moto Guide um, about the trip. So there, you can get a bit more of an in-depth uh, thing um, from me. And uh, Rachel's blog is is her in-depth version. <laughs> I've been speaking with Ed March and Rachel Lasham. And you can find out more about Ed at his website, www.c90adventures.co.uk. And Rachel's blog at www.wanderonahonda.co.uk. And of course, you can see Ed's videos on YouTube at C90 Adventures. Those links and more will be in the show notes on our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you in part by Traction E-Rag Magazine, the online magazine for off-road enthusiasts. Subscriptions are free at tractionerag.ca. And Audible, where you can get a free audiobook for listening to Adventure Rider Radio by visiting audibletrial.com forward slash A-R-R. And don't forget to visit our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. And you can see all the episodes we've done. You can listen to all the past episodes for free. And you can see all the show notes from the episodes you've listened to. Or send us your comment or suggestions you might have for the show. And you can click on the donation button and support your Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks for listening. I'm Jim Martin. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. Hi, I'm Ed March from c90adventures.co.uk and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 